Hey gang, Sarah Ivory here. Before we get to our regularly scheduled program, a quick announcement. You remember Israel's story, don't you? That's our This American Lifestyle series featuring intimate and funny stories out of Israel. Well, it's back for a second season. It's great. It's got stories that take us all over the country and beyond to Kathmandu, Malta, Nova Scotia, and elsewhere. To catch new episodes of Israel Story and any others you may have missed from the first season, go to tabletmag.com slash Israel Story. Or subscribe to Israel Story on iTunes or the podcast browser of your choice. It's a great podcast. Check it out. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, we're talking about the life of Marcel Proust. Marcel Proust, the son of a Catholic father and a Jewish mother, is considered by many lovers of literature to be one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century. He's best known for his seven-volume masterpiece, A la recherche de temps perdu, or In Search of Lost Time, which he wrote in the last 15 years of his life when he was ill and largely bedridden. He died at the age of 51 in 1922. All that sounds rather grim, but as a new biography makes clear, Proust's life was not grim. As a young man, he was something of a dilettante. He had many love affairs, he frequently made the rounds of Paris's most exclusive salons, and he squandered a sizable inheritance while never holding down a real job. How did a man of such seeming frivolity produce such groundbreaking and profound work? Joining us today to tackle that and other questions is Benjamin Taylor. He teaches writing and is the author of Proust, The Search. It's a new biography. It's just out from Yale University Press, which sponsored today's podcast. Benjamin Taylor, welcome to Vox Tablet. Good to be here. Thank you, Sarah. When did you first encounter Proust as a reader? Ah, oh, let's see. Uh, it was my junior year of college, uh, a French literature course. I was at Haverford. I went over to Bryn Mawr to take uh, a course in 20th century literature and read uh, Du Côté de Chez Swan in French. So my first exposure was in French rather than English. Were you immediately a fan? Yes, I was immediately a fan and wondered how this writer who had lived in uh, the time of the French Third Republic could have known so much about me. How so? <laughs> well, his depictions of childhood and of sheltered childhood and of the uh, inner life uh, of a child uh, in uh, bourgeois circumstances, uh, a n nervous, neurasthenic, uh, self-conscious child reminded me a lot of myself. Were you able to get through the whole seven volumes at that stretch, or was this something that you kind of consumed over many years? No, it's uh, something I went away from and then came back to, and I guess I first read the thing in its entirety, oh, 10 years after that. And then I began teaching it in translation in various places, and it's been with me ever since. I'm very grateful to the Yale Jewish Lives series for giving me an opportunity to um, bring to term my long-standing fascination with Proust. Proust is a very well-covered figure in terms of literary history. Why write a new biography of him now? Well, I thought I had a point of view that was my own and an interpretation of his work that was my own. And I admire greatly the biographies that exist, which are vast books. 
I wanted to write a book that could be read in two evenings. This biography, as we mentioned, is part of the Yale University Press Jewish Live series. And certainly Proust qualifies. His mother was Jewish, though his father was Catholic. Tell us a little bit more about his background. Yes, uh, it was a mixed marriage. The father was a, from a little town in the Ile-de-France called Illier, nowadays called Illier-Combray. And his family had been settled there for centuries. The mother's family were culturally ambitious, well-to-do brokers and bankers of the Faubourg Saint-Honoré in Paris, part of the haute juiverie of their time, uh, not Jewish ruling class. These were not the Rothschilds or the the uh, uh, Camondo or the Pereira. No, no, not like that. But um, the mother, who had no formal education that uh, that I can find out about, that any of us can find out about, was highly cultivated and knew uh, several languages, had internalized the whole history of French literature and music and art. And uh, this was what had replaced Judaism in their lives. Uh, there was no synagogue going, even in the previous generation, to speak of, perhaps on holidays. Uh, but she did decline to convert to Catholicism. It was a marriage of ambition on both sides because uh, uh, she was of a higher social rank than Dr. Proust. Dr. Proust, though, was one of the most distinguished physicians in France, and it was he who had helped to establish the cordon sanitaire against cholera. And Proust's younger brother, Robert, would also be a, a distinguished physician. Proust was quite different from his father and quite different from his brother. As you say, he never had a regular job. He was much closer to his mother than he was to his father, is that right? Yes, certainly. What was the nature of their uh, bond? Well, she was his uh, protection from the world. She was his source of knowledge and wisdom. He could not imagine life without her. She could not imagine life without him. They were in daily touch wherever they were, and she fretted and worried and adored and worshipped and uh, coddled him. And in fact, it was only after her death and after the consuming grief, the all but fatal grief that he suffered after her death, that Marcel Proust, the genius, not just the talented person, but the genius emerged and that was 1905 when she died. And by 1908, 1909, 1910, he is fully at work on the book we know as In Search of Lost Time. He had uh, terrible asthma as a child starting when he was around nine years old, and he missed a lot of school because of this uh, affliction. It doesn't seem to have limited him, though, socially or intellectually, this lack of schooling. Oh, he really had a wonderful secondary education at the Lycée Condorcet, which was right there in the neighborhood. His whole life was uh, was lived within a, a matter of a few Parisian streets, and he had marvelous teachers at Condorcet and marvelous classmates. I think he knew much, much more coming out of Lycée Condorcet 
than uh, an undergraduate knows in the humanities coming out of uh, uh, Columbia or Princeton today. I want to just go back for a moment to something that you said before. He started writing his sort of magnus opus after the death of his mother. How are we to understand that? Well, this is interesting and complicated. He had undertaken the translation of John Ruskin, and this fascination with Ruskin, uh, not a well-known writer in, in France when he began, consumed about nine years of his life. He was only able to translate Ruskin because his mother's English was so good. His English was no good at all. Hmm. And the end of the Ruskin period coincides with her death, and uh, he is then, I won't say liberated, maybe condemned to an originality that uh, he hadn't been able to achieve before. He had published a a first book in in the 1890s called Les Plaisirs, Les Jours, which was um, a rather amateurish collection of charming pieces. No hint in that book, or only if you know what was to come can you see hints of uh, the greatest genius uh, uh, of the French novel. It's uh, it, it, He's just not yet himself. Throughout his life, he uh, dwelled in very cultured circles. Tell us a little bit, if you will, about some of the luminaries who he socialized with as a young man. Yes, it's true. Uh, most great writers come out of uh, very provincial circumstances and don't meet another writer until they're uh, along in their career. That wasn't the case with Proust, who was born into the the most cultivated milieu of Paris. And when he published Les Plaisirs et les Jours, Anatole France wrote an introduction. So uh, this was somebody who had contact first through his parents and then through the the salons he frequented with the most illustrious names of the day in painting and in literature and in music, all three. And he was uh, somebody on whom none of this in the end was lost, and little bits and pieces of a lot of those people. I'll just give you one example. The painter Vuillard uh, uh, appears, a fragment of Vuillard appears in the figure of El Steer, the great painter of In Search of Lost Time. I don't know of very many other great writers who were so uh, exposed, had such entree uh, to the world of uh, the greatest uh, achievers, uh, this may have inhibited him. How? This may not have been all good. Well, if you're in that room with all those people, it's a little bit uh, deceiving. You've, you may get the idea you've arrived before you have and uh, that you're, uh, uh, you, yours too is a name to conjure with. He published prematurely, Marcel Proust. And uh, he was a long time emerging as the writer we know. Was there any indication in the in his early life that he was destined for any kind of greatness in terms of art? Well, what I find is that he, he there's every indication that he wasn't destined for anything else. Uh, not necessarily that he was destined for greatness in literature, but he he certainly wasn't destined to be a, a physician like his father <laughs> or his brother. Or, or, and really, he wasn't even destined to be a librarian. He, he symbolically held a job 
at the Bibliothèque Mazarin, uh, but I have no evidence that he really ever put in an honest day's work there. He had sick leaves, one sick leave after the other. In the book, you point to the Dreyfus Affair, which began in 1894, as a seminal moment for Proust. At that time, the Dreyfus Affair, Proust was in his early 20s, and what happened was Alfred Dreyfus was a Jewish-French army officer who was accused of sharing military secrets with the Germans. Of course, this uh, unleashed a wave of anti-Semitic reaction across France, even as the evidence grew that Dreyfus had been framed and was not guilty of the charges. How did Proust respond to these events uh, that proved so polarizing in, among his social class, among the intellectuals of France? The initial response in 1894 and 1895 was mostly silence. Uh, nearly everybody believed that these allegations must be true. It's only in 1897 and 98, at the time of the second trial, court martial of Dreyfus, uh, his return from Devil's Island to stand trial at Rennes a second time, that that uh, Marcel becomes involved and uh, Robert, his brother, also. They become involved and they are instinctively on the side of the Dreyfusard. Uh, this divides France into enemy camps and Proust is active in the captain's behalf from an early stage. In fact, he liked to refer to himself as the first Dreyfusard, which is ridiculous. He was not. But the father, Dr. Proust, was not Dreyfusard and refused to speak to his sons for two weeks when he found out that they had signed one of these petitions that ran in the newspaper and that Proust, that Marcel had obtained Anatole France's signature for the same petition. His motives were not feelings of Jewishness, that should be said. He, like his brother, felt that this was a terrible miscarriage of justice and that the evidence was fraudulent and that the uh, army was trying to save its reputation and uh, worse still, to hide the reality of uh, the real traitor's identity. And this uh, uh, really miserable uh, affair uh, played out over the course of years. And believe it or not, the anti-Dreyfusard uh, sentiment, which is, is Jew hatred, it's nothing but anti-Semitism. Uh, it still survives vigorously in France, uh, as I'm sure you know. And Marcel has in the Dreyfus affair a tremendous opportunity when he comes to write his book, because he can represent uh, the whole of a society infected by a uh, virus that has laid waste uh, France over the course of years. Throughout your book, throughout the biography, you point to different people in Proust's life who appear in some form or other in In Search of Lost Time. You mentioned them before, Anatole France, for instance. But you make clear that this book was not autobiography, and he himself said this is not an autobiography. What did he see as the relationship between the life he lived and the world that he was depicting? Well, that's a that's a big question. Uh, it is a novel that takes the form of an autobiography. It's just not Marcel Proust's autobiography. That would be a way of putting it. Certain aspects of 
Marcel Proust's identity vanish completely from the identity of the narrator, who is in one or two places called Marcel, but not called by name typically. And, uh, uh, well, I'll just give you two examples. Um, Marcel Proust was half Jewish and altogether homosexual. The hero of In Search of Lost Time is neither. But uh, the hero of In Search of Lost Time is surrounded by a universe of Jews and homosexuals. Many of the homosexuals, crypto-homosexuals. Some of the Jews, crypto-Jewish. So uh, he is dealing with his own times as filtered through uh, his own identity. But insofar as it takes the form of autobiography, it is, as with other fiction writers, transmuted, transmogrified, and he has the freedom of imagination which carries all before it. He's not telling his story. He's telling a story that perhaps in some respects weirdly resembles his own. But I think it's a terrible mistake to write a biography of Proust uh, on the assumption that there are one-to-one correspondences between the people in the book and the people in the life. During the course of his writing of In Search of Last Time, World War I broke out. You said that there was a quite a long span of time between Volume One and Volume Two. Men that he knew were killed at the front. Back in Paris, uh, the city was really enduring its own bombardments. How did this violent period affect him? Proust was reading seven newspapers a day. He was he followed the events uh, of the 1914-1918 war as closely as anyone could. And he was very intuitive, intuitive enough to be skeptical about much of what he was reading. It, too, like the Dreyfus Affair, becomes an essential part uh, of the work. And it changes Paris. It changes the the beau monde uh, that he had depicted, not beyond recognition, but very dramatically. And people have uh, new obsessions, new bigotries, new hatreds. There are very powerful scenes in which the hero of the book goes out by moonlight to look at Paris uh, on the assumption that it's about to be destroyed. And um, there are these extraordinary scenes where all the representatives of all the French colonies now under arms, uh, uh, pour into uh, France and the Baron de Charlus sees uh, uh, this panoply of uh, young men all dressed for, for war. And the numbers are, 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 of course, just staggering, incomprehensible to a people whose standard for destructiveness had been the Franco-Prussian War. So uh, uh, he has, like all writers, he has that to cope with. And like all writers, he regards the Great War as a parting of the ways between two ages and, uh, in fact, uh, um, speaks apocalyptically. Um, You see these same people on the other side of the war, Uh, Many of them grown very old, fantastically old by the end of the book. Our hero is old too, but when he goes to the 
party at the Princesse de Guermont, he, he looks to him like a, uh, a masquerade party in which people have put on these masks of old age, but they aren't masks. And uh, it is certainly a different France. It's a, diff- it's a France so different that people whose identity seemed fixed in, in the pre-war world uh, are now uh, unanchored and uh, one or two in particular have risen dramatically uh, in the social scale as the result of the general disorder. You'll forgive me my next question. I have a confession that I have to share, which is I have only read Swan's Way, the first volume. Uh, I don't even remember, actually, if I read the whole thing. It was a long time ago. I think it was in college. I have this hunch, though, that I'm probably not alone, that most people probably don't read Proust at this point. Uh, Certainly, I can't imagine that they're doing it for entertainment. Um, But what do you think? Do you think people are reading Proust? Or do we know him just sort of as shorthand, the guy who gave us the Madeline metaphor to use? Well, I I find him the most entertaining of novelists and the funniest of novelists. So I would disagree with you uh, on that score. Everything that is intimated in in volume one is fulfilled by the end of volume uh, seven, Time Regained. Uh, And... um, you don't really know what volume one means until you've read straight through to the end. So I highly recommend getting to it. I hope you won't think I'm too much of a bore. No. <laughs> right now, though, I will say that in my circles, the book, the volumes that are consuming people are the uh, cycle of novels that cover a lifetime uh, in Naples. I'm talking about the books of Elena Ferrante, the Neapolitan uh, cycle. I know that you've written a book about Naples uh, where her fiction is really anchored. And I wonder uh, if you've read that book and if you think she holds any debt to Proust. Yes, I have read Ferrante. And I really think she's an entirely original person doing something entirely different. I've also heard people say that Knausgar, uh, uh, Karlova Knausgar is, is Proustian. I don't see that either. I think these are very interesting writers, uh, but I wouldn't call them Proustian. Maybe it's just we're all blinded by the magnitude of the books. Well, she's written a, a cycle uh, centered uh, by and large on a, on a, a great city and yet the dramatis personae are entirely different, and the vision of life is entirely different. Uh, I think, as one critic recently said, that the that the, the deepest subject for Ferrante is the, uh, the pathos and drama of a change in social class uh, in, a, in an anciently stratified culture. Benjamin Taylor, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Sarah. Benjamin Taylor is a founding member of the graduate writing program faculty at the New School, and he's the author, most recently, of Proust, The Search. It's just out from Yale University Press. Go get yourself a copy. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Avery. We thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.